There's classics news, Sam. Have you heard uh -oh. about it? Uh-oh. Uh, is this uh, Mount Vesuvius erupting? No, no, that happened that happened a long time ago. Um fall, you know, of, fall of the Roman Empire in the West? Also a long time ago. This was much more recent. Um, oh, uh, fall of Constantinople, 1453. You got it. That's exactly it. Uh, no, uh, dear listener, I don't know if you're a reader of of the New York Times, but uh, recently there was a there was a there was a guest opinion piece in the New York Times uh, that had social media ablaze, at least as far as I could tell, and it was called "I Teach the Humanities," and I still don't know what their value is. Uh, Sam, did you did you run across this opinion piece? Um, no. Yeah, uh, no, my uh, my my daily reading has been out of this being less rigorous than yours. Well, I, I only read it recently um, and I kind of ignored it because the social media response uh, to this was very much like, then you should just quit if you don't know what the value of the humanities is. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about some of the conversations we've had earlier on this podcast and I and I took uh, a, a gander at this opinion piece. Uh, written by Dr. Agnes Callard at the University of Chicago. Uh, this came out early December of 2023. And I think it's a really interesting piece that um, ties into some of the discussion that we've actually had recently on this podcast. Um, I, the, a lot of this piece is about why it kind of feels futile to mount a defense of the humanities, because ultimately the humanities is about curiosity and discovery and contemplation. And it isn't a simple kind of plug and play formula of here is the kind of specific intrinsic value that that studying the classics or philosophy or literature brings to society. Um, I just wanted to bring people's uh, awareness to it because I think this is kind of an interesting entry into the discussion around what is the value of studying things like mythology, ancient literature, uh, like we have uh, for most of our lives. And there's kind of an admission that um, the act of, you know, uh, inquiry and curiosity is just something that is valuable kind of in and of itself. And we don't have to necessarily come to the mat um, with the sort of statistics that are being demanded of us for this thing to to actually matter. Um, Again, not necessarily a, a more of our, our fun cold opens, but I would encourage you readers to to give this uh, piece a read. Again, it's called I Teach the Humanities, and I still don't know what their value is. Um, so it's it's a defense of the humanities by saying that there's not like a specific, um, you know, there aren't specific data points that we should 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 point to when we say this is why we study the humanities. Is that sort of the like... Right. It's kind of a defense of not defending the humanities in a way. Um, yeah. I think it is kind of an, an open question. Again, a lot of people, you know, poke fun at the author for just the title uh, because, you know, unsurprisingly, the title is very provocative. But I think the piece itself is actually quite thoughtful. And this idea of, you know, it doesn't come simply down to we need to study the humanities because um, if we don't study because it's like good for democracy or something like that, uh, like. Um, that's oftentimes the sort of defenses that you hear uh, for things like classics and whatnot. And I think this piece is a little bit more um, welcoming people into this conversation and kind of a way of knowing as opposed to 80% of people who pursue humanities degrees earn $60,000 within five years of grad. Like that's sort of those sorts of statistics that I think oftentimes uh, people in classics and other fields feel forced to, you know, rattle off to say, don't defund our departments. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Cause that's, you know, I teach humanities. I still don't know what their value is. That's, that's sort of what I say in my classroom, right? There's a lot of questions that people ask me and, you know, I try to be as frank as possible. And, and often the answer is, I don't know. Right. And it's, there's, and I think that's something that's an important aspect of doing what we do um, in that we just can't know. I mean, so much of, of what goes on in the ancient world, right. We can't know, we can't be certain. Um, when a student asks me, Oh, you know, what about, what about this? Uh, do we know, do we know that? Where does this myth come from? What are the other versions of this story? Um, what actually happened in this historical moment? 
And so often we don't know, we can't know. And I think there's a, there's a, a tremendous uncomfortableness that comes with accepting that you don't know something, but also that you can't know it. But that doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about, that it's not worth um, investigating. Um, so I like that. Yeah, I'll, I'll read that. Uh, is it, uh, they, are they a classicist? Is, is Dr. Callard a classicist or just? No, she's a, she's a philosopher, but at the end, she does have a, a special distinct nod to classics, you know, an acknowledgement that classics departments around the country are shuddering and that, you know, um, she finds, you know, kind of a deep sadness about that losing kind of the teaching of Homer and Plato in many places and like kind of the value of the, te those texts that, that, you know, she values and obviously we value too. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to bring this to everyone's attention if you hadn't read it. Um, and we can keep, we'll keep talking about this. This is a kind of persistent question that we'll, we will continue to wrestle with on this podcast. And again, Rick Riordan is calling us into, as we read uh, the Percy Jackson series and, and near the end uh, of this first five book saga. So without further ado, let's hop into the podcast. Cue the music. Welcome to the All Roads Podcast, where two classicists find an excuse to share their love of the ancient Greek and Roman world by discussing middle grade books from the early 2000s. <laughs> I'm your host, Sam Hahn. And I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And today we're talking about the third book in the Percy Jackson and Olympian series, The Titans Cursed, which was published back in 2007. Um Sam, I'd love to hear your initial impressions of this book before we dive into it. I don't like it. I didn't like it. Inter okay, speak more. Why? I don't know. I guess it just felt it felt to me like it was on less familiar mythological grounds. Um, right with uh um the hunters and you know, this sort of, you know, followers of Artemis, sort of teenage, preteen Amazons. Um, you know, there, there are mythological tropes, right? And, and there's certainly basic myth elements. I mean, the Nemean lion, uh, stuff like that. But I don't know, it felt less, it, it felt different. I mean, things are getting more complicated. We've got, you know, Bianca and, and Nico, we don't have Annabeth. Uh, so yeah. we, we've sort of broken up the, you know, the dream team we've added now, now Thalia, right. Is yeah. a, you know, a member of the party. So it's, it's, it's different. And I think that you, it, Percy's a little more angsty, right. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit more uh, Harry Potter five vibes, which I know you like, but I don't like, um, <laughs> You know, because he's Percy has this weird relationship with Thalia, and we don't have the whole like I love Annabeth, but everywhere Percy turns, like everyone's just like crushing hard on Luke, and yeah, I don't know, I just didn't like it as much. No, I, I think I I feel similarly about this book. I think there's, dear listener, do not worry. There's plenty of interesting things that we can dive into in this book, but I did feel like it took it a, a lot longer to actually start re-engaging with myth in the same way that we saw in those first two books. Um, and I kept kind of waiting, like, where are we going to get like strong allusions to myth? And really it, you don't get much until they actually get to like Washington DC is really the first time you actually start getting kind of solid footing when it comes to, you know, Greek mythology, uh, which is, kind of late in this third book it feels like uh rick riordan is doing a lot of setup um in the first half to do a lot of more original imagining of this world which i don't think necessarily is a bad thing but i think for our purposes made it a little bit less interesting of a book to engage with until kind of the second half which i think th there there's a lot of interesting pieces that we can touch on there uh but i i agree i agree with you it, it, it feels different uh, than the first and two it, books. It it also right, it starts with them going to 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 Westover Hall. It doesn't it, it doesn't have that same 
I'm just a normal kid. I'm in a school. I don't fit in. Sure. Monsters attack the school. And then this whole sort of, um, you know, reintegration, right? This movement from the, the regular world, from being an awkward, you know, poor student, 14 year old into this magical world where he like belongs. We start right. there. Um, right. And so that's also just, you know, diverges from the pattern. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, and and I think also the the absence of Annabeth, really, you know, is, is that another big departure in this book. And again, we're spending a lot of time with Thalia and and Artemis and the Huntresses, and then again, there's kind of a lot of new people that we spend a lot of time with in the books. Like kind of the core crew uh, isn't together much, and you know, Grover plays a much reduced role in this book as well it's a lot of percy and bianca and zoe um in this book and a lot of these people are are really new to us as as readers and i think it it changes you know the dynamics um of the book um i think it might be helpful if we remind our readers what happens um in the titan's curse um, again, you mentioned, you know, the book starts with Westover Hall, which I do think is a very funny name, um, uh, you know, given the trajectory of this series and Luke's own, you know, uh, machinations. The the end of the West Hall is how I read uh, this this school. Um, doesn't feel like the most subtle of illusions, uh, Uncle Rick, but um, I appreciated it. Right. And they, like they're it. going there uh, to kind of uh rescue, recruit, you know, introduce Bianca and Nico D'Angelo um, to the fact that they are demigods and kind of bring them to Camp Half-Blood and whatnot. And at the end of this book, we'll find out that these are, in fact, uh, the children of Hades uh, before the big three actually made their pact. Um, you know, they run into Dr. Thorne, this manticore who's kind of part of the Kronos plot and trying to keep these uh, demigods away from joining the fight of uh, in defense of Olympus. And in the process, right, Annabeth is lost and is gone for most of the book, only really appearing in Percy's dreams until kind of the final chapters uh, of the Titan's curse. And we meet Artemis and, and her hunters uh, and uh, Bianca actually, you know, renounces, you know, romantic love, growing old, becoming a woman to join the the, the hunt. Um, again, a lot of this book is focused on Artemis and Annabeth. And I think we can have an interesting conversation about what is it like Greek, Greek maidenhood. There's a lot of focus on, on, on the girls in this book, which I'm sure a lot of the readers uh, will have enjoyed uh, and appreciated uh, because again, we've spent a lot of time with Percy so far. Um, again, just to kind of uh, finish up the synopsis of the book, right? They go back to Camp Half-Blood. There's this prophecy. Artemis has gone missing. Annabeth seems to be crushed in this kind of cavern. And so there's a team that goes off to try and rescue Artemis and Annabeth. And Percy kind of tags along at a distance, right? They go to Washington, D.C. There's a general of Cronus's army raising up men. Uh, from the earth, these kind of zombies. Uh, and there's the famous, you know, fight with the Nemean lion in the Smithsonian uh, Aerospace Museum. Um, they go to New Mexico, where they fight the Aramanthian boar. They go to Arizona, uh, where there's the junkyard of the gods. They run into Ares and Aphrodite. Um, they fight the giant um, kind of automaton Talos um, and Bianca. Uh, who has recently joined the hunt, a friend, new friend of Percy's, uh, dies in the process. They go to Hoover Dam, they run into Athena, and they finally make it out to San Francisco, uh, where they, um, where Percy wrestles Nereus to find out where uh, the Hesperides are located. Um, and they go and they find out that Atlas is the new general of Cronus's army who has been freed of his burden of, you know, holding up the world. And they have a great battle and eventually vanquish him. Um, um, uh, but in the process, lose uh, Zoe. Again, one of these new friends. Person makes a lot of new friends in this book and then a lot of them die, um, uh, which I think is also kind of a tonal shift for this series. There is kind of a real loss of life um, in this book. Um, I don't know. What do you think of that synopsis? We didn't get everything. Um, 
there. I think it's good. Um, I think it's good. I, th- I mean, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, hit, we'll come back and hit a lot of these points. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, so it's you know, broad strokes. It's a, it's another similar quest story, right? They've got to yeah. go and they've got to go rescue uh, Annabeth and save Artemis, and you know, we have this this similar uh you know similar uh, stop stopping points that we've seen before you know rick loves these large i think he's i think there's a little annabeth uh in in rick that he loves these yeah. you know the arch in st louis the hoover dam right there's this emphasis on um you know important monumental architecture in the u.s museums right we've got the smithsonian yeah. uh and does he hate california I, I'm unsure. I I know he taught in San Francisco for a time. Okay. So he's lived there part of his life. Um, you know, maybe it's, you know, near enough to him that he feels like he can criticize it. Maybe he, he knows it a little too well. You know, you can make fun of your home, but nobody else can. I, I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, cause there's, I mean, there's, there, are, you know, there's a, a huge emphasis on the, on the homeless population in yeah. San Francisco. But also then, you know, going back to the first book, you know, Hades is in L.A. Right. Um, and of course, Percy's from New York. So I, you know, I wonder, and you know, I'm, a, I'm an East Coaster myself, um, if this is a sort of East Coast, West Coast, um, you know, back and forth, you know, Camp Half-Blood is, you know, in Long Island. Um, I did not know he taught in, 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 in California and in, in San Francisco. So I wonder if, I wonder if he liked it. I wonder if he had fond memories. I wonder where he lives now. You know, once he made yeah. his money, uh, did he decide to live in Long Island? Does he like yeah. live in the Hamptons? He should. He should, have, <laughs> like, he, he should have his own little camp uh, with a bunch of like 35 year olds who just like sword fight in the background as he like walks through his property. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, but yeah, we do have another final confrontation in California, which is funny um yeah in terms of places where where to start i I think you know i want us to think a little bit about um kind of greek maidens um Mm -hmm. sam you and i have talked a little bit about this that it's very interesting that one of the main characters of the series annabeth is uh the daughter of athena which obviously comes up a good bit in this book um and it is, of course, ironic because Athena um, famously is a virgin goddess, uh, which doesn't exactly square neatly with her having uh, Annabeth as a daughter. Um, for people who are familiar with the, the Parthenon in Athens, a great temple that was built um, by by Pericles, one of the great Athenian leaders before the Peloponnesian War. Um, you know, um, it is a temple that, you know, acknowledges kind of the virgin status uh, of Athena. Um, and, and there's a, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and there's kind of an acknowledgement, I felt like in this book, that there is this kind of not not necessarily contradiction, but a changing of the myth of tra- tradition in the Percy Jackson universe. Because, of course, Annabeth, uh, we find out, uh, has been contemplating uh, joining Artemis and the hunt. Um, ultimately decides not to. Again, others in this book obviously do. Bianca choosing this kind of immortal kind of girlhood um, following Artemis. Um, I don't know. What, what were your thoughts, though, kind of seeing this kind of follow out throughout the book um, as kind of a kind of key plot point and theme? Yeah, I think it's interesting right, that we, we learned that Annabeth thought about it, right? At the end of the book, Thalia joins um bianca joins right away um so with the exception of clarice that's like every female character we've met um right you know every you know female demigod um obviously there are more you know sort of running around in the background but i think it you know that certainly speaks to the allure um and you know i don't know if it's a middle grade thing right if you're 14 the idea of not having to ever deal with boys uh, ever again, maybe that's appealing. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of larger thing at play here, um, but we, I mean, we certainly get the whole, you know, the sort of the awkwardness around the genders with Percy, you know, he's 
yeah multiple times he talks about how he's not comfortable talking to girls anyway but he spends the whole book talking to girls and thalia and then you know thalia hugs him at the end and he's like are you even allowed to hug me aren't you like didn't you join this cult to like get away from me and, and when i say cult i don't mean like a the way we think about cults in 21st century america um but in sort of the the, the greek greco-roman religious sense right the the, the the followers of ultimate artemis are cult yeah right um but it's interesting because artemis is artemis is interesting that artemis is a goddess who is kind of hard to pin down right she's mm-hmm. the the twin sister of apollo right we see apollo um but she's and so she's similar to apollo in many ways right you know later apollo will be associated with the sun and artemis is associated with the moon both are archer gods, um, which probably represent for the Greeks death for unexplained reasons, right? You like, you know, if you have a mm-hmm. fall over from death of an aneurysm, right? That's Apollo shooting you. Um, but for women, right, it's childbirth. And Artemis is curious yeah. because she is the goddess of the hunt, right? With, with the hunters here, the goddess of wild animals, but also the goddess of childbirth. And the protection of women before they give birth and right. generally before they are of age to um, become pregnant. So she's a, she's a complicated goddess. And she, so we, you know, we don't see her sort of manifest all throughout, uh, you know, Greek literature and, 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 and Roman literature. She's, I mean, she's there, but I think there's a lot of questions, right? There, there are a couple specific cults of Artemis that we, we know a little bit about, yeah. um, but not a lot. Yeah. The, the most famous I think is probably the, the cult of Artemis at Brauron um, and in Attica. So near Athens, and again, it is, it's, there's also some wild stuff associated with it. You can go to the site. There's a museum there. You can tour the ruins um, at Brauron. Um, so if you ever get a chance to go to Athens and, and, and go around in the countryside, it's a great place to go. But, you know, at, at Brauron, there's this, you know, interesting ritual where like these young girls behave like bears um, as like part of this, you know, uh, kind of cult worship of, yeah, these kind of, um, girls before they become women again there's this kind of like tradition where like you're not ready to be married until you've like kind of participated in this cultic practice um and yeah we we see other pieces you know attached to this kind of like transition from like girlhood to womanhood at at you know um places of worship for artemis you know people will um dedicate kind of things from their childhood to artemis as they prepare to get ready um and yeah it, it, she is very much again this kind of yeah I, I, yeah like liminal goddess like kind of in, living in this kind of in between um space um that that I, I i thought the book actually kind of treated relatively well i i think they capture artemis um i think in a kind of in a very vivid and um educational way um i don't know what you what your thoughts about how rick riordan depicts artemis in this book but um i actually actually quite liked i kind of quite liked her her character um to be honest i think she would have been older um i think i think generally apollo tends to be a little bit older than at least the romans would have thought of apollo um, if we look at the way Apollo is, is depicted, he's usually, uh, you know, more like a 16 year old kind of thing. Um, but I think Artemis right here, she's a girl. She's like a 12 year old. I think even though she's associated with, you know, prepubescent girls, I think she's older. So I, I didn't like that um, because okay. she does, she does oversee childbirth and the you know the the sort of you know the liminality of art i mean a lot of these gods have like a liminal um aspect we talked about this with hermes um in one of the first episodes but i mean artemis again her sort of two realms are like women before childbirth and during childbirth and animals and in a way instant death that's the archery thing 
So what's the connection? I think what, what I've seen, what I've read, I'm not clever to come up with these things myself, but I mean that the, there's a connection between humans and animals. Sort of the moment at which humans are most like animals are, you know, when they're giving birth, when they're being born and when hmm. they're dying. Right. Cause there's, there's no, you know, you can be all as civilized as you want and wear fancy clothes and read books and, you know, live in not a cave, but when you're giving birth, when you're being born and when you're dying, you know, there's nothing separating animals from humans. So there's a connection um, with the wild. And I buy that with, with Artemis, but I don't know. I, we see glimpses and I'm, you know, there's a couple of stories in like Ovid where you see glimpses of sort of the followers of Artemis um, and right. Is it Callisto who gets kicked out? Um, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. She pollutes, she becomes pregnant. Um, and then there's a pollution because she, because she, she's pregnant. So she gets kicked out by Artemis. Um, I don't know. Artemis seems intense. And then, as I mentioned, there, there aren't specific references to the Amazons here, but Artemis is, you know, the followers of Artemis and these unmarried women and women who are sort of acting like men in the Greek mind. There's often a connection with the Amazons. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of the, you know, the boogeymen of the ancient world. We see an, right. in, in, an inversion of this in, in Euripides Hippolytus, right? A play about um, the son of um the the king of Athens, Theseus, and his Amazon, I won't really say wife, but he had sex with an Amazon, and she gave birth to this guy, Hippolytus, who was basically the prince of Athens, but he doesn't want to have sex, which is weird for the Greeks, right? A man who doesn't want to have sex is not doing his part, especially mm-hmm. if he's you know a, a, an aristocrat. But he just wants to follow Artemis. He wants to run around to be, you know, this follower of Artemis. And so the, 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 the story is all about the play is all about um, Aphrodite screwing him over. Right. And making his, his stepmother um, fall in love with him or lust after him. But it's weird because Hippolytus wants to act like a little girl, right? He wants to run around and play in the woods and follow mm. Artemis. And so, and it was super weird, right. For the, for the classical, audience who is consuming a lot of the sort of text that we have, right? Our texts are written by, you know, aristocratic, you know, citizen men. Um, and the target audience seems to be for a lot of things, uh, aristocratic citizen men, obviously, you know, things like plays are performed as part of society. A lot of epic things are, have, you know, performative context, but, we get a weird, we have sort of a skewed view, I think, from the textual record of something like Artemis because Artemis is so not aristocratic citizen men. Um, mm, yeah. It's sort of, it's sort of the, the inversion. And so I think we see that a little bit here because um, Percy is just coming to this world and he's just, you know, Book three, he's like, I know who I am. I now hang around with Grover and Annabeth. We're going on this mission at the beginning of the book. Like, I carry a, a, a sword in my pocket, and I don't think twice about fighting manticores. But then the 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 hunters come in and sort of throw everything on their head, right? We There's no mention of them in other books. Um, how complicated is this mythologic world, right? There, there are a lot of hmm. secrets. So I think it's, you know, it's, you know, it's overthrowing the patriarchy, uh, right? And not that, that that's all wrong, um, but it's interesting. Did I mean, did you, did, did Artemis show up and you were like, this feels right. This is like, this is how I imagined Artemis. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's exactly how I imagine Artemis. I think to your point, Artemis is kind of absent pretty regularly and a lot of kind of greek myth and storytelling because again she doesn't fit in super neatly because kind of her whole thing is kind of this isolationism right she doesn't want to be observed by the world of men men are regularly punished for you know running across her in the woods running across like um her you know um a cohort of women um um and so you don't see her that often. And again, I think when you do get depictions, hearing you talk about that, I think you're right. In some ways, maybe this is maybe more stereotypical 
of maybe how we might see Artemis. And it doesn't acknowledge some of the complexities of like Artemis and her relationship with childbirth. It's very much focused on she's the goddess of like, um, you know, unmarried girls and this kind of wild side, but also kind of glosses over this other piece that you've brought up, which I haven't thought much about because, um, yeah, I think for me, I was like, oh, this makes sense how she's being depicted um and i I may may have not thought critically enough about her other kind of associations there um it is certainly a surprise uh when she comes to the rescue i really didn't see it being artemis um it is kind of a surprise turn in that book you know i don't know i was like oh are the centaurs here um you know when you see the arrows flying um but for it to be artemis um legitimately took me by by surprise um I, I did not see that that coming um i have a question yeah because you you know hearing you respond to all the really smart things i just said made me have more <laughs> really smart things to say yeah um right i mean to, so this is a book written for middle schoolers yeah um and so as we've talked about mythology it you know it's it, it's been neutered a little bit right you know but not even literally, right? Even even the moments of castration are recast as slicing up, right? The I mean, sure. there is sort of discussion of rape in this uh, this book, right? There's a lot of mention of the satyrs, you know, chasing nymphs and they turn into trees, sure. right? That's not mm-hmm. like playfulness. That's like that is in the myth, the myths, you know, explicitly sexual assault. Um, so that's sort of right. That's sort of played about a little bit um but for the most part i mean the this is a sort of recasting of the the greek myths and we've talked about that that's part of you know the, the interesting thing the, one of the things you can do with myth but is this how perceptions of myth change right if 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 we read this and here's this sort of artemis who's just little girls you know running around in the woods and we sort of lose the childbirth thing. We look at Dionysus, right? A god who is defined, you know, he's another very, all these gods are, are complicated because they have so many different facets, right? right? Dionysus, god of, of wine. Um, and through that, he's connected to quick growing vine plants. Um, he's, he's connected to theater, right? What's the connection between wine and theater? It's sort of, you lose yourself and you're out of control and you're, you're acting like somebody else. You're portraying somebody else. Um, we don't get that at all, right? Dionysus is, he's been super neutered, right? In these books, because that's the whole point. He's sort of on timeout. He's being punished, but his like fundamental natures as he's portrayed in Greek myth are absent. You know, the, 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 the scariest moment of Dionysus for me is again, going back to Greek tragedy, um, Euripides, right? In the Bacchae. Yeah, the Bacchae, um, yeah. He comes, it, it, the, the whole play is about Dionysus going back to his hometown to, to to fuck with people because nobody believed that he existed, which sort of makes sense because he's a new god. Um, and so his like aunts and his aunts are there. His grandfather is like um, this like former king and his, his uh, cousin is the current king. And of course it doesn't make sense when your cousin's like, Hey, I'm a Olympian God. And you're like, no, you're not like, you're just my goofy cousin. Um, but he goes back and there's vengeance. Right. And he sees all these people destroyed, right. His, his aunt tears his cousin, the King apart. She literally tears his head off and puts it on a stick. Um, and at the end of the play, he comes, he comes down and uh, his grandfather Cadmus says to him, he's like, dude, that's, that was too much. Like too much. Cool. And Dionysus is like, bro, I'm a god. I do whatever I want. Right. It's scary. It's a, I mean, it's a it's a reminder, at least in the, this one context, um, you know, how the Greeks thought about their gods. And so to have that same guy be just a goofball with a Hawaiian shirt who keeps talking to like Peter Johnson. And, you know, talks about wine, but can't actually drink wine. It sort of misses the point. So I just wonder if 
you know, the generation of people who grew up reading these, um, these books. And I see them cause I, they take my classes. And when we talk about Dionysus, or when we talk about Athena or when we talk about the Furies or whatever, um, people have the wrong idea. Is this how myth, I mean, this is the, this is a big question. This is sort of what we've been wrestling with this whole time. Yeah. I mean, is this, is this how things really change? You know, are the next generation of people who didn't grow up reading Edith Hamilton or Bull Finches, I mean, that's a couple of generations past, or Robert Graves, um, or people who just don't read the originals. Maybe this is our purpose, right? To sort of go back to the original source material. Um, I mean, is it, is, it, is it a threat? Is it a problem? For for the people who read the humanities, is this a reason to read the humanities? Uh, to go back to our our yeah. uh, our open, because it's you know if you talk about some of these characters, these mythological figures, and you sort of over distill them or focus latch on to one aspect of them because it's less complicated, does that oversimplification sort of undermine the whole? endeavor that's a that's a big question um you know in some ways again whenever we read percy jackson i try not to be overly critical of details and exactly what freak is doing because i think we do have to keep the audience in mind and just the nature of the genre and 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 whatnot um to your point though I, i i i think you know your point of you know our point of being a little bit let down by this book is it feels like the engagement with the source material is a lot more surface level than we would hope to have seen in this third book and that you know uh, you know i i will say that i i think mr d gets more you know, fleshed out in this book than he has the rest of the series so far. We do have a moment where he kind of like drives people mad, um, you know, uh, among the the forces of Kronos. So there is a little bit of that, but you, I think you are right. There's a certain amount of neutering that happens. And part of that is just because of the audience of these books and what is appropriate for, for this story, these people, I think, I think there's, there's a reason why the childbearing, you know, aspect of Artemis is being cut out of these books because it's aimed at people who are not having kids, right? So it's like this part of Artemis is completely superfluous to a 14, 15 year old, right? This is not something that they are really concerned about um, for the most part. So, you know, I think there there is that piece, but I think to your point, it's it becomes, yeah, like, I mean, this is always the question that classicists have when you read a text is like, at what level is the kind of text that came before this, the mythology came before this, like, to what extent is this author engaging uh, with that previous tradition? Like, how closely have they read it? Um, how clever are they being? And, you know, people will go back and forth about, you know, the use of this word is clearly alluding, you know, a, a word that classicists love. This is alluding to this specific moment in this other text. So, like, it is very careful and it is very playful. And, you know, as we've read Rick Riordan's work, it is this question of, like, what what is Rick reading, right? This is kind of a question that we're always asking, right? Um, I go on Rick's website and he has a book, he has a list of, you know, recommended books. Um, and a lot of these are mythology, like, um, compilations, retellings and whatnot. And, you know, as an English teacher, this is something that he has been assigning his students, right? This is the sort of thing that you have middle grader, middle schoolers read in school. Um, but I think it is a question, you know, uh, you know, the Ophiotaurus um, in this in this book, right? Bessie. There is this, yeah, Bessie, uh, this this serpent bull that Percy rescues uh, with good old uh, Blackjack. Um, you know, this is a mythical creature that really only occurs once in mythology. Uh, we have a mosaic 
um, depicting this creature, but really it only ever appears in a book written by the the Roman poet Ovid, um, um, uh, Dr. Dr. Sam's favorite author. It only appears in one of his books, The Fausti, which is a kind of um, mythical compilation based on the Roman calendar, retelling of myth to align with the different holidays and month names in the Roman calendar. It's not super widely read outside of, you know, our specific Me. discipline. But, yeah, outside of Dr. Dr. Sam and I took a graduate seminar on this um, back in the day. Um, but not a lot of people read the Fosti. And I think it is a question like, has Rick Riordan read the Fosti? To what level is he engaging with that tradition? He's clearly familiar with what the mythic tradition in that book is, but is that because he is engaging with the text or is he getting this second hand? I think this is this is a conversation we've had back and forth about where where is all of this coming from in Percy Jackson. And I think I think Rick Riordan has had some really inspired moments in the earlier books but i think for both of us book three is a bit of a letdown because i feel like it was it felt like more of a surface level engagement with a secondary source as opposed to a deep engagement with the actual mythical tradition it also felt to me a little bit more episodic right there sure. was you know you like you know you zone out for a second and all of a sudden you're like at a different location a different place it reminds me, I don't know if you watch James Bond movies. One of the one of the middle Daniel Craig, I think it was Quantum of Solace. Oh, yeah, that and one's bad. I was so confused. I because all the you know, all the characters look the same. You just they would just kept switching location. That's what this mm -hmm. book felt to me a lot like. Um, but it's yeah, so I think I think maybe Rick was reading the Fosty, right? And the you know, I, I wrote my dissertation on the Fosti, so I, I think a lot about the Fosti, um, and it is it's it's one of these texts that's was so often read as a handbook, right? A mythological handbook. There's a lot of myth there, but as you say, it's it. There's a lot more going on, right? It's about the Roman calendar, it's about politics and religion and all this all this other stuff. But the story of the Ophiatoris is is a weird one, right? It's it's you know it's it's sort of an elusive creature. Um, you know, there are a lot of monsters in the Greek mythological world, right? You know, you've got sphinxes, we've got manticore, we had the manticore at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I don't These know if combination now's time, creatures. Now's now's time to out you as the the the, the dungeon master for our, our D D game. We fought a manticore uh this week. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, I think there's a whole another dive on uh on Nico D'Angelo and Dungeons and Dragons at a different point. But or Magic the Gathering, which may maybe is a better analogy for, for whatever made up game he's playing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll come back to that. But I mean, a lot of these monsters are are half of this and half of that. Right. Right. So you've got the mana core, which is sort of an amalgamation of different animals. You've got griffins, you've got sphinxes. Um, Peg Pegasi. Yes, right. And so we've got this Ophiatoris, this weird animal, which is half bull, half snake, whatever that looks like. Um, and the story itself that we get in Ovid um, about the sort of the, the Briarius, this, um, this, so the hundred, hundred handed. Yeah. The um, hundred handed, like giant. Yeah. The, the, the sacrificing of this animal and the story that we get in Percy Jackson where whoever sacrifices it has the power to sort of upset the status quo and challenge the gods. Um, it, 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 it even comes from a Roman historian, Livy, um, or a sort of a similar story that there was this, this magic cow um, sacred to Diana, right? So to Artemis. Um, and the people who live near the Romans, the Sabines, um, they had this cow and the prophecy was whoever sacrificed the cow would get like, you know, some, some bonus points with the gods, right? It'd be good for you. It'd be, there was political power. Um, and so the Romans like real quickly got the cow and sacrificed it. 
before the Sabines could sacrifice it. And mm-hmm. of course, the Romans wound up winning, right? We talk about ancient Rome, not ancient, you know, Sabine, ancient <laughs> Sabine, whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting that Ovid's modeling the story on a historical thing, and then um, Percy Jackson is taking that story and running with it. But the you know the first thing that came to my mind, Sam, and this is probably not the first thing that came to your mind, right? This whole combination sea creature cow, which is weird. Um, but there's another sea creature cow from a little bit later down the road in the sixth century CE. Um, the Franks, right? The you know the people who become France. Um, they have a story, and we get this in a couple um, Frankish histories. We get this in um, Gregory of Tours um, and in the the, the Chronicle of uh, Fredegar. But there's a story that the wife of the king, a guy named Clodio, the wife of the king is bathing, and she has sex with a sea monster called a quinitar. And the Quinitar is also half fish, half bull. Okay. And so the Quin is five. Um, and so right. the general explanation is that the bull has two horns, and then trident, the trident of Poseidon has three prongs. And so it's the trident of Poseidon plus the two horns um gives you five. So it's some sort of sea bull with five horns. And there's a connection with Poseidon, which is you know always interesting for Percy Jackson, but um, the wife of King Clodio, you know, is impregnated by this bull and gives birth to a character named Merovec, who is then the the father of Childeric the first and the grandfather of Clovis the first, who's the great Merovingian, you know, original oh, okay. Merovingian ancestor. Okay, and this is like that. This is like the family before uh, Charlemagne, before the the Carolingians. And the Franks have a couple – they thought they were at Troy just like the Romans. They have a couple connections with like <laughs> Roman mythology. Um, they sort of set themselves up as parallel to Roman mythology um, in, in different ways. But we have this, this sea creature and this connection with Poseidon. And it reminds me of another Poseidon story um, with the, the birth of, of Theseus, the king of Athens. Mm-hmm. Um who is the father of uh, Hippolytus, who I mentioned a little while ago. Um, but Hippo- uh, the mother of Theseus was, she had sex with Poseidon on the same night that she maybe had sex with uh, her husband. And so there's this ambiguity. Is uh, is his father um, Poseidon? Or is his father the king of Athens? And it's good if you're a hero to have a divine father like Poseidon. But it's also important if you're a king to have your father be the previous king. So there's this mm-hmm. this, this sort of ambiguity, which you also get with Merovec, right? He He's the son of the king, but also the son of this like um, mythological monster. But anyway, that's, that's where my mind went. Um, that's a lot of places he, for your mind to go. This uh, is this is the, the journey. This is the, the blessing and the curse of being me. This is how my mind works. I'm like Bessie, the lovable Ophiotaurus, uh, Merovingian history. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's again, it's it's another monster that's half of this, half of that. I mean, even Grover. Um, and I think we see this throughout. I mean, Greek mythology, the sort of blending of the real and the imagined. Mm-hmm. And of course, we get it with with Percy Jackson that he sort of straddles these two worlds um, in the same way that some of these animals um, are partially grounded in realness, but, but not always. Do you see this, the Ophiotaurus as, I mean, was that sort of a weird exchange though, at the end of the book where they're like, here's this animal that if it's sacrificed, it could just completely destroy everything and the entire sort of mythology of the greeks is based on this idea that the olympians are like sort of forever set up 
which is the the threat that the Kronos is trying to upend with Luke with this sort of reverse generational switch. Did it seem weird that they were like, no, but like we can't kill this innocent animal? Like, is is that how you think the gods as the Greeks imagined them would have acted? Well, I mean, probably not as the Greeks would have imagined them now. Um, but I, I feel like it is it, it is kind of directly tied to Percy too like it, it is this idea of like prophecy right i think there is this you know right we've talked about this before greek prophecy is going to come true right if if you say okay there's there's this kid of the gods who's going to overthrow the gods you know i mean we've talked we've talked about the fact that this is the one myth that doesn't come true in greek mythology but you know percy's point with the Ophiotaurus is you're not going to be able to dodge it like this this prophecy you can't set up a circumstances where you beat the prophecy if you try and beat the prophecy you'll just make end up making it true and i feel like it's the same thing with percy right percy in some ways is kind of an ophiotaurus himself right there is this there is this 16 year old descendant of the gods who has the potential to destroy olympus i mean this is kind of the question the gods have at the end like should we just get rid of these kids who pose a threat right it's the same thing should we get rid of this ophiotaurus that if somebody burns its entrails and they would have immense power to destroy us right and i think you know in order to justify percy getting to go on at least two more adventures to finish out this series for him to be able to make it to his 16th birthday we have to say the, the prophecy is going to come true in, in some way right it's even set up at the end of this book now we have yet another kid right um thalia says i'm not going to be the person of the prophecy i'm never going to turn 16 because i'm joining the hunt but uh-oh we have nico and nico oh he's also a descendant of one of the big three so it could also be about him way down the line right so there is always this question like this prophecy will come true one way or another and if you take out percy jackson it doesn't solve your problem because ultimately you don't know how the prophecy is going to come true um so how old how old's nico right he's like 12 he's a little bit younger than them he's younger I mean, yeah obviously yeah. He's, he's he's he was born a long time ago but. right exactly 1930s um right we find out that the the d'angelo children spent a lot of time in the lotus hotel um and so they, there's a bit of a gap in their memory when it comes to presidents of the united states um as we find out in the book right but he's so but he's like a little bit younger like he's yeah, I was like 10, 10, 12, something like okay. that is my yeah. memory. I don't know exactly. Reader, uh, let us know. Um, but yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think it's a foil for for Percy and this question of like, why don't the Olympians just like solve their own problem? Um, so that, that's my that's kind of my justification for why exactly this is the way that it that it that it is, even though, you know. There is a question of like, is this exactly how the Greek gods would actually behave? Um, this also makes me kind of want to come back to this earlier question we had just about how uh, Rick Riordan is engaging with Greek myth and is it a good or a bad thing? And, you know, again, I think we both wish that he engaged at a more deeper level in this book with some of the mythology. Um, but at the same time, I would say that you might be able to level this criticism at a lot of other authors is like, not everyone's able to engage fully with the kind of whole breadth of who the gods are and all they encompass in some ways, you know, even ancient authors are picking and choosing what exactly they want to emphasize from, you know, the very varied character um, of these gods. Um, and so maybe, maybe we should be a little bit less harsh on, on Rick. Cause I'm not sure that most, most authors, even in antiquity, um, engage with these gods on every single level, but, you know, we do have some good examples of that, that, you know, Sam has brought up Euripides and Ovid and some of the greats. Um, yeah. And can. it's, I don't know if I'm, I mean, I guess I am leveling some sort of criticism, um, but I'm also aware, right. That the, you can't do what I'm doing. I, th I think it would be some, some fun fan fiction. If someone like rewrote Percy Jackson or, you know, this, this Percy Jackson world with like the horrific violence and horribleness of like 
what we get in some Greek myths. I think that would be interesting. Um, it's certainly an interesting thought experiment. But I mean, my my point was more, you know, does this does telling the story one way or looking at the story through one lens affect subsequent readings in the way that you know, and, and you know, the more important or famous or successful, the more widely read something is, the, the greater the effect is. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, I know less about. Uh, like Tolkien than you do. Um, but we were talking about this um, the other day, right? And, you know, Tolkien changes a lot about the sort of fantasy world, right? Tolkien, you know, changes, reinvents um, the way that we think of dwarves and elves and even the spelling of things like dwarvish or elvish versus elfish and dwarfish. Um mm-hmm. You know, certainly there is there are there's source material, right? There's you know Norse things, there are other fantasy interpretations, but the sort of what we think of, most of us, when we think about you know fantasy settings, um, you know, a sort of standard dungeon and dragons type setting is 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 almost pure Tolkien. Sure. Right? Yeah. So does and that doesn't mean that there aren't other people who imagine these these creatures in other ways or other variations but does someone who has an effect right and here you're welcome uncle rick i'm comparing you to tolkien in your your influence um but you could probably say similar things for for harry potter the way that you know certain groups goblins for example might be perceived after harry potter Uh, but is the sort of reading and treating this mythological world in the way that this series is, is that like when someone says, Oh, Artemis, they'll be like, Oh, 12 year old girl. Oh, Dionysus, like weird, awkward recovering alcoholic. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, is that, and obviously we can't know, um, but just, it's interesting the way that one text affects another text. Yeah. I I also think when, one interesting thing about, book three, the Titan's curse is just the texts that the myths that Rick Riordan is engaging with in this book are in some ways our least well-known myths. Artemis, again, we don't have, there's not tons of text about Artemis that you can engage with. There's some, um, but not tons. Again, the Ophiotaurus only appears once in mythology, um, you know, and the kind of like hero. I mean, we have all these different heroes that uh, Percy has been compared to in these books. And the person he's most clearly compared to in this one is Hercules, or as the Greeks knew him, Heracles. Um, right. And Heracles is very interesting because he's like, you know, this a giant figure of Greek mythology, but we don't really have much of like, a singular text like the great epics about hercules are lost to us like most of the mythology of hercules again um the 12 labors is probably what people are most familiar with heracles for um he obviously goes with jason and the argonauts um like we talked about a few episodes ago um but a lot of the account of what the labors of hercules were come from a compil a late compilation um, pseudo Apollodorus's Bibliotheca, the library. And if you read it, it's sparse. These are just like paragraph summaries of how the Nemean lion went, how the Aramanthian boar quest went. You get a little bit more for the apples of the Hesperides, right? But there's so little. Um, if you actually look at the text, there's not as much to engage with. There are obviously like references and other texts to what Hercules does in mythology. But I also wonder, maybe there is just a limiting factor um, for Rick in this book in that there isn't as much of a rich tradition around the labors of Hercules as we may want. You know, a lot of what we get about the myths we get from vase paintings, 
So we have some artistic traditions. Um, we have some travelogues. There's a guy named Pausanias that went all over the ancient world and wrote about his travels. And he talks about, you know, the temple of Zeus at Olympus, uh, at Olympia, uh, had all of these like, you know, metopes, these kind of carvings of the different labors of, of, of Hercules that he describes for us. But, um, I think I was kind of struck with, again, a disappointment that we didn't get a little bit more of an interesting engagement, but also like there, in some ways, the, what he's pulling on, there's a lot less to engage with than the Odyssey, which is obviously what he's drawing on for book two of the Percy Jackson series. Um, so I, I think there's also this, you know, you know, thinking about like, what do we lose when we kind of boil down and change things uh, for our readers. I almost wonder if this is maybe a reflection on just the sort of mythic tradition we receive about some of these great heroes. And sometimes we do get these kind of like one dimensional depictions of Hercules, Hercules, like Hercules, there's plenty of nuance with him as a character, but the kind of like overarching pictures that we get of him um, are pretty sparse. And sometimes, yeah, that just informs how we view these sorts of heroes. Um, and sometimes that's a choice and sometimes that's just all that we have. Sam, do you have final parting thoughts on book three? Yeah, I've just got one last thing um, that as you, uh, dear suffering reader, listener, now know, uh, my mind just works in random connections. Um one last thing that, that that came to my mind, we didn't really talk about it, um, right? Those um, those sewing the dragon or uh, uh, dinosaur, the T Rex teeth, and growing mm -hmm. up dragons. Um, and there's that bit about people confusing, you know, dragons with dinosaurs, which I thought was interesting. Um, there's a book which I haven't read yet um, that's all about sort of the way that the, the Greeks and the Romans thought about dinosaurs and dragons. Um, in bones it's called the first fossil hunters um the, the the subtitle is dinosaurs mammoths and myth in greek and roman times wow. um, by age by adrian Mayer, who's at stanford um and she's also written on the amazons and on mithridates the poison king um but it's it, it's kind of fascinating and i haven't read it i've flipped through it but just the way that you know the the greeks and the romans looked at sort of the natural world um and there's there's bits in like herodotus the great historian talking about the bones of heroes um that it was clear that there were like fossilized large-scale bones that were being discovered in the ancient world and there was this like it, they turned to myth to explain them right oh these are the bones of the heroes from a the, a, the silver age or the bronze age or something Oh, these are the bones of a dragon rather than, you know, an animal that went extinct, you know, tens of millions of years ago. Um, so it's just another reminder of sort of the the power of myth and the use, you know, one of the the applications of myth to sort of explain um, what cannot be otherwise explained. So that just occurred to me, you know, when I was reading the book and uh then other things happened and that thought left my mind. Another random thought popped <laughs> into my mind. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Dear listener, this is the life of a classicist is trying to understand what were the influences of the person that you are reading and trying to suss those out. That's a lot of what you do, uh, which is why, you know, we can sometimes feel a little bit ADHD ourselves in our analysis uh, because in some ways you are trying to recreate the thought process of someone from several thousand years ago, which uh, is impossible, right? Which is why right. you can't always know uh, what the value of the humanities is. I guess you can't always know. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for listening. <laughs> uh, uh, it's 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 great that you've been along for the ride so far. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you so much to Belgium, uh, where we have a growing population of supporters and followers and listeners. So thank you to our friends in Belgium. If you guys like the podcast, which I know you do because you're you're smart enough to listen, please leave us a review on Apple 
wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Say good things. It makes the Sams feel nice. But more importantly, the magical algorithm uh, will then help connect our show with more people. Um, and that's ultimately what we want. So so leave a review. Five stars is the best kind of review there is. <laughs> um, you can also reach us um, on Gmail at allroadspod at gmail.com. Um, we're working on a website, but uh, you know, let us know what you think. If there's something you want us to talk about, um, if there's something that uh, bad Sam said that that wasn't right, didn't sit right with you, let us know. And I won't say who bad Sam is. You can suss <laughs> that out for yourself. Um, but yeah, guys, please help us out. Help other people find the show. Um, tell us what you think. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. This has been Sam Hahn. And Dr. Sam Kindick. And remember, if all roads lead to Rome, then why not take a detour with us? Bye. Bye. <laughs>